listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. Today's guest is from Wilton, New Hampshire, and has been playing and sharing her love of the Appalachian dulcimer for over 25 years. Over the years, she has led many workshops at festivals in New England and New York. Today's guest is also a contra dancer, caller, and dance organizer. But her greatest joy comes from bringing people together around music. For her dulcimer students, whom she is now teaching on Zoom, her goal is to help each player find their own unique musical voice. Some of the repertoire workshops that she has led throughout New England include shape note hymns, Breton, Welsh, and Manx tunes, tunes for the fife and drum corps tradition, jigs, waltzes, and hornpipes. She also has led technique workshops. One festival organizer called her a delightful and insightful teacher who delivers the goods with clarity and humor. It is my honor to introduce today's guest, Sandy LaFleur. Welcome back to the show, Sandy. Hey, thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm saying welcome back because you were on our Celtic program, and uh, I, I thought perhaps we need to find out more about you. We opened our show with a track from your album, Ama, uh, help me with the pronunciation. Ama, Amaskeg Waltz. Amaskeg Waltz. And you recorded this with your good friend Bill Perry uh, on mandolin and guitar. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about this particular track? Well, Goodbye Girls, I'm Going to Boston is a play party song. So not to be confused with dancing, but it involved moving to music. But um, in a tradition that dancing was frowned upon, people managed to get around that by having play parties. Um, and so that's a, an old-time tune, uh, one of my favorites. Dancing was frowned upon in New England, or uh, uh, in, the, in, in what circles was dancing frowned this, upon? This was this was further south. This is in some of the the um, some of the southern traditions where the, where the um, religious feeling was strong against dancing. And on this particular track, you were playing the dulcimer for people who have never heard of the dulcimer or seen a dulcimer, uh, can you describe what it looks like? Sure. So there are two different types of instruments that are referred to as dulcimers, uh, one being the hammer dulcimer, which is a large trapezoidal instrument with lots of strings that's hit with small mallets or hammers. The instrument that I'm playing is the Appalachian or Appalachian, depending on where you're, uh, where you're hearing this from, um, dulcimer, which is a, a fretted zither. The fretboard runs the length of the body. It's an, a, a long, narrow instrument. Uh, mine particularly is a, a long hourglass. It sits in the lap, and it's generally played with a pick. What is the uh, history of this instrument? It's believed that the origin of the instrument goes back to some of the Germanic countries. There are a number of fretted zithers in folk traditions over in Europe. Hummel is one, Langspiel is another, Langelec is another, and the Scheitholt is the one that they seem to think that is most closely related to the Appalachian dulcimer. It's another fretted zither. It's a little different than the dulcimer, and there are some wonderful photos that can be found uh, in some of the... um, I have some books that I have, actually, of some of the old, old instruments that they think became the mountain dulcimer. So when people came to this country right through the the Cumberland Gap, it was like a, a funnel that brought a lot of people together in a lot of different cultures. And it is thought that the um, Scotch-Irish 
uh, immigrants encountered this instrument called a Scheitholt or something similar uh, and made some changes to it. And what developed is the Appalachian dulcimer. So when you say it's a fretted zither, Zither. uh, uh, for me, frets are the little uh, uh, wooden tabs on, on the neck of a guitar. Is that correct? Am I correct in that? The frets are generally made out of metal. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, the frets on a guitar are made out of are made out of metal, and they go across the the fingerboard or the neck of the guitar. The the dulcimer is different because there really is no neck. The fretboard sits on top of the sound box of the instrument, and there are there are frets that nowadays do go all the way across the fretboard. Um, the earliest instruments. Before there was even fret wire, uh, there was just a staple, and the staple went only underneath the melody string. And so the drone strings would 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 sound always the same note. Um, and it has been called the string bagpipe. Um, and I really, really am drawn to those drone notes. Um, it's I find them very centering and grounding. Um, but with the advent of um, fret wire and the frets going all the way across the instrument, uh, the, the fretboard, now chords can be can be made, and so a lot of people play in the what's known as the chord melody style versus the melody drone style that was only able to be achieved. You know, it's all you could achieve with an instrument that did not have a fret that went all the way across underneath all of the strings. There would be then non-fretted zithers, and if so, how are they played differently? Unfretted zithers would be something like uh, well, you've seen those those kind of they look almost like a a music box or a um, almost like an, like an auto harp that didn't have frets. You can put a piece of paper underneath and you play the different strings. They're usually trapezoidal, small music maker, I think they call them. So that's a zither as well, but it has no frets. And the way that you get a different pitch is by plucking a different string. But with the um, Appalachian dulcimer, the way you get a different pitch of, of, of note is by fretting the string and then making, the, obviously, the, the vibrating string length shorter, so then you're going to get a higher pitch, just like you would on a guitar. And when you mention a drone sound, what exactly is a drone sound? So a drone is just a, a note that sounds the same pitch regardless, all the way through. It's just, it, it's unchanging. Similar to the bagpipes, they have drone pipes, and you hear that the melody, which is produced from the chanter, played against the drone notes. And if you listen to a bagpipe carefully, you'll you'll hear times where the the melody note and the drone note sound really good together. They sound harmonious. And then there are other times when the ear might go, "Ooh, that that doesn't sound quite right." And that's when the melody is kind of uh, is kind of fighting with that drone string and it kind of there's some dissonance there but that always resolves and, and we you know we, we accept that about a little bit about a, a dissonance because you know that the melody does return to kind of a stable place where the drones and the um and the melody um work together can a guitar player easily transfer the guitar playing skills to playing the dulcimer i think that guitar players would be able to play a dulcimer more easily than someone with no musical experience, but it is definitely a, a very different, a di- different experience because it's also we haven't mentioned this yet um, a, a diatonic fretboard, 
And what I mean by that is it's just a do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do scale. It has none of the half steps that, say, a guitar has or a piano has. And the thing about that is that it makes it much easier to play. You don't have notes that you, gee, you might hit by accident. They all pretty much sound good. And so a guitar player might say, well, where, where is the G sharp? There's no G sharp on this instrument. Depending on how it's tuned, you're right. You don't have all the notes. Your dulcimer of choice is the Appalachian dulcimer, but is that a general term? Are there different styles of dulcimers? You know, it's, you know, it's interesting. The further south you, you go, you'll hear Appalachian, and they'll say that that's the right way to pronounce it. And up here, we often say Appalachian. We have the Appalachian Mountain Club. It's the same mountain range. goes all the way from Maine to Georgia. But there are different shapes um, of body shapes. Uh, the hourglass is one. A teardrop shape is another. Most of the dulcimers that are being played when you go to festivals are tuned a D, A, and then the D octave above the low, the lower, the bass uh, string. But there are some dulcimers that are baritone instruments, and those are tuned uh, A, E, A, and that's the the A below the lowest D on the um, standard instrument. And there's also banjo dulcimers. The banjo dulcimer is um, looks just like a dulcimer. It has the same fretboard, but it has a banjo head. And so it sounds like a banjo, although it's played like a, uh, a regular mountain dulcimer. It sits in the lap, just like a regular mountain dulcimer. And I should say also, Marshall, that the Appalachian dulcimer is sometimes called a lap dulcimer. Sometimes it's called a mountain dulcimer. Same thing. And you mentioned dulcimer festivals. What's a dulcimer festival like? <laughs> they're so much fun. And they're all about this one instrument, most of them. There are a few festivals that uh, will be mountain dulcimer and hammer dulcimer, or maybe music festivals that have you know a number of different instruments. But this last weekend, I was part of the uh, uh, Dulcimer Association of Albany's uh, Dulcimer Festival, which was virtual this year, and it was all... Appalachian dulcimer, all mountain dulcimer. People take workshops. There are workshops for people who have never played this instrument before, all the way up to very experienced players. Now, you also play the, am I pronouncing this correctly, the boran? The boran. Boran? Boran, Can you explain what a a boran is? It's an Irish frame drum. It's a a wooden frame, a shell, and they vary in, in... diameter from, I've seen some that are maybe, you know, 12 or 14 inches, 16, 18 inches, and it's a a wooden frame, and then there's a a skin that is uh, stretched over one one of the openings, one side, and that is tacked uh, to the wood. Usually, traditionally, it's goat skin that's used, although I have one that is synthetic, so it doesn't change with the humidity levels, which is something goat skin will do. And you were nice enough to record a piece using that instrument, and and perhaps we can listen to it. It's uh, the Bladen Races. Can you explain what the Bladen Races are? The Bladen Races. Um, the, the tune was one I heard in, in a jam session, and it just it kind of became an earworm. You know, if you know what I mean by that, that just doesn't want to go away. And the tune was running through my head. You know, I'll wake up in the morning and and and, and hear it. So I, I, you know, played it. You know, I, I internalized it and pl- found it on, on the dulcimer. Then, of course, I had to look up to see, well, you know, what exactly is, is the, what are the Bladen races? And, you know, it's interesting, Marshall, for me, the, um, 
the music has been a window into history. And what I found about the Blade and Races is that the tune, and it's actually a song, their lyrics, was written by George Ridley uh, in 1862 in the music hall style, and he was, this was his most famous composition. And the lyrics reflect the Geordie dialect of, of northeast England. Um, Bladen is actually a small town in Gateshead, which is uh, four miles from Newcastle-upon-Tyne in northeast England. And it was originally a horse race. I did not know any of this until I encountered the tune Bladen Races. And then in 1981, it became a foot race uh, of 5.4 miles, and it's always held on the 9th of June. The tune is, uh, and the song is actually the unofficial anthem of Tyneside and is sung by the supporters of the Newcastle United Football Club. And there's also a circle dance called the Bladen Races that uses that tune. So all of this was unknown to me until I heard this tune and wanted to know more. With that history, why don't we take a listen to the Boran uh, and uh, you playing the Bladen Races. That was the Bladen Races featuring my guest Sandy LaFleur playing both the dulcimer and the boran. And I could just picture those horses <clears throat> taking laps around the, uh, the track. You also conduct technique workshops. What exactly are technique workshops? So on the Appalachian dulcimer, there are, you know, talking about new players, and this is the first time they've ever experienced, maybe in their lives, an instrument. This is the first time they've ever had the opportunity to play an instrument. So it's just starting from the very beginning, hand placement, finger placement, where to put your fingers on the fretboard, um, strumming, and then, you know, further on down down the road, things like hammer-ons, pull-offs, 
finger picking styles, different different styles of playing, that is, sort of thing. Is it difficult to be doing this over Zoom? No, actually, it works pretty well. I've been teaching out of my home for you know many years and in person at festivals, and then. I have to admit I was I was a little bit hesitant to to jump into the Zoom thing but I had students that really urged me on so I I did I jumped into the whole the Zoom Zoom thing and it really it it is working well and I've have a second camera so I have uh, one camera just pointing it at my fretboard in my hands so they can really see up close exactly what I'm doing they send music ahead of time and I should also mention that when I send a piece of music or for a workshop or even private lessons, I use a system called tablature as well as standard notation. So standard notation is something that any musician would be able to read. It's the, it's the staff. But tablature, by definition, is a system of notating music for a specific instrument. So dulcimer tablature has three horizontal lines, one representing each of the strings, and then there are numbers on those which represent the fret numbers. So it is not necessary for a person to read music uh, in order to, to play the dulcimer. Now, you mentioned that you were jumping into Zoom. So speaking of jumping in, you also are a uh, teacher of contradancing. What is contradancing? Contradancing is the New England style uh, of dance, social dance, that started life as the more formal and proper English country dance, along with influences from French-Canadian cultures as well, especially here in New England. But if you think of Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice, everyone uh, dancing in the hall and everyone at arm's length, it's like that, but not. There's a lot more um, connection between the, the dancers. There's, you know, uh, balances forward and back and swings and and right-hand alamans and left-hand alamans and do-si-dos. And a lot of those uh, figures will sound familiar to your listeners who may have had some square dancing experience. And so, and they, and they are. The figures are very, very similar to square dancing. The difference is that in square dancing, you're dancing with a partner and three other couples in a square, and you don't leave that square for that that particular dance. You just, those eight people interact. With a contra dance, you're standing generally opposite your, your partner, and you've got long lines of people down the hall heading away from the band, and you will interact with every one of the people in your contra dance set. And you do these figures each time through. Um, you will find your place moved either one place away from the band, or if you're a number two couple, one place closer to the band. It's a wonderfully fun and friendly social activity. You mentioned square dancing, and when I think of square dancing, I think of people wearing cowboy boots. Do you have any special dance wardrobe that, that is unique to contra dancing? No, except uh, we do ask people to carry in clean-soled shoes because grit would, you know, would harm the, the finish of the, of the nice wooden floor. But aside from that, you know, think, just wear something that's comfortable. Women will often wear skirts, but not always. So whatever is comfortable, there is no formal, no formal wear. Yeah. I'd like to take time to play another track from your album. <clears throat> and this one is, again, I'm going to have problems with the, uh, with the pronunciation, the Amoskeeg Waltz. How did I do? You, you did you did okay. Now, uh, yeah. 
Would you like to introduce it for us? Sure. So the Amaskeg Waltz was a tune that came to me as I was walking up some stairs at one of the old mill buildings in Manchester, New Hampshire. The um, the banks of the the river are lined with these old brick mill buildings. Now a lot of them have been repurposed. And we held a contradance uh, in one for quite some time. Walking up the steps to the, um, was the I think we were on the second or third floor, um, I was struck by the risers of the steps because there on each riser was the word Amoskeg, A-M-O-S-K-E-A-G, and it was, um, it, they stood out. It, it was in, like embossed. And the risers were black, but someone had taken the time to, to paint in gold for each one of these risers of the letters Amoskeg. And I thought there really needed to be something to commemorate. Um, the word Amoskeg comes from the, um, the Native American tongue, meaning good fishing place. Uh, and so uh, that's how the, the waltz came to be, the tune came, and, and that's what I titled it. Well, let's take a listen to the Amoskeg Waltz. That was the Amoskeg Waltz from the album of the same name played by my guest, Sandy Lafleur. Before we started this interview, you mentioned that you were taking end-of-life doula classes. Can, can you tell us a little bit about this aspect of your career? Mm. So uh, a lot of people are familiar with the term doula as, as it relates to uh, birth doula. 
So it's a support person, and end-of-life doula is similarly a support person, but this time for the other threshold of life. So I have done some of this work and, and uh, desire to do more of it to support people at the end of, at the end of their lives. And sometimes it can be um, helping to arrange things in the home, work with the family members to find out what kinds of needs are, are, are what is needed. Sometimes I've served as sort of the gatekeeper, if you will, when families get overwhelmed with, you know, who needs to know what, and we need this to happen, we need that to happen, we need this help. And if they give me the, um, the, their contact people, then, then they don't need to worry about the rest of it. I can set all of that up. Also, I'm very interested in the, you know, the actual end of life and the actual passing, being able to support the person in that time and, and educate the family as to what is going on and how you know, the process is, is a normal process, and we need to honor that. It's a very sacred time. A lot of times families might want to do a home funeral afterwards. Home funerals are legal in all 50 states do not need to use a funeral director or a funeral home. This can take place, uh, the, the vigil uh, or calling hours, if you will, can take place right in the home, and the body is kept cold uh, with, with special ice. And it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful tribute and much more, much more personal. And actually, it's the way that we, we used to honor and care for our dead but back before... Um, you know, funerals became a commercial enterprise. Yeah, well, I also play music at the bedside. Um, that people find that very, very comforting. That's certainly a very honorable way to to use your talent for music to soothe people in this way. For listeners who would like to hear more of your music, where can they find it? I do have a website. It's the www.wanderingdulcimer. Dot com and I can be reached. My email is there. People can reach me there. You're also uh, a, a distributor for McSpadden dulcimers. What what makes McSpadden dulcimers so special? They have been making dulcimers since the 1960s, and they make a really fine instrument. I I that's what I play. Um, they make a very good quality instrument for a reasonable price. They stand behind their work. Uh, and their instruments, and I've had um, very, very happy customers. A lot of my students, when they first start out, they've, I've always wanted to play a dulcimer, or maybe they, they were thinking about buying one, and I always say, oh, no, no, wait, wait, wait. And um, I have cardboard dulcimers that I actually loan out to new students. The sound box is made out of cardboard, but it's a wooden fretboard and you know, metal frets and tuners, and they don't sound half bad. And um, so that way people can try out the instrument to see before they um, make a purchase. Sandy LaFleur, I'm so happy that you were able to take the time to speak with me, and I'd like to come full circle and close with another track from your album, I Live Not Where I Love. Would you like to say a little bit about it? I think this is one of the most beautiful melodies I have ever heard, and it's a very old, a very, very old melody. It's um, an old English melody is my understanding. Again, thank you very much for being my guest, and I hope to hear from you again real soon. Thank you, Marshall. This was a treat.
listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. This program was written and produced by Marshall. Mr. Radio is available wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes and Spotify. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. And don't forget to tune in next week for another episode of Mr. Radio.